Please open your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're pausing our study of Luke, both last week and this week, to try to work our way through John's prologue. As John sets up his gospel, he helps us understand who this word, this Messiah, is to whom we will be focusing throughout his gospel. And as I said last week, the real issue of Christmas is what do you make of this baby in the manger? Who is this child wrapped in swaddling clothes? And John, in his gospel, tells us some crucial information about Jesus and who he is. And we'll look there this morning. I'd like to begin by reading verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, Full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would give us eyes of faith, that you would help us to see and behold this glory full of grace and truth in your Son. Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength to become children of God, that we would be those who receive you and your word and your Son, So, Lord God, on this day where we turn our attention most specifically to the Incarnation, help us to grasp the majesty and the amazing glory that is at work in Bethlehem. In Jesus' name, amen. John's prologue is a very familiar passage, and last week we worked through roughly Granted, at a bird's eye view only, the first 13 verses. This morning, we're going to focus on verses 14 through 18. But I want you to keep your finger here in John, and then turn all the way back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 32. 
The reason for this, I hope, will become clear. But the short answer to why I go back to Exodus is this. In John 1, 14 through 18, John makes a number of allusions to this section of Exodus. And I think as we try to understand what John is putting forward, we need to understand it against the Old Testament backdrop. So my plan is to take 10 or 15 minutes, work through the plot line of Exodus 32, 33, and 34, and then return to John 1, and hopefully with that information in tow, make better and fuller sense of what John says. Now, Exodus 32 is the infamous incident with the golden calf. If you remember, the people have been saved, delivered out of Egypt. God takes them straight away to Mount Sinai, where the people enter into a covenant with God. And Moses goes up on the mountain that shakes. And he's gone for for a number of days. And the people begin to wonder where he is. And they tell Aaron to make us gods for us to worship. So Aaron has the people gather their gold And he fashions a golden calf. And up on top of the mountain, the Lord tells Moses what has taken place. And Moses goes down and he he smashes the idol. The people have to drink the water with the gold dust in it. The Levites walk from one side of the camp to the other, striking down whomever they come across. Pick it up in verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So Moses goes up and he makes intercession for the people. And he pleads with the Lord to to forgive their sin. The Lord's response, verse 33 Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead this people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Now, that's an alteration. Up to this point, the Lord himself and a pillar of fire, a cloud has gone with the people. Nevertheless, in the day I visit, when I visit them, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. So the people are disciplined by drinking the gold water. The people are disciplined by the Levites cutting them down. People are disciplined by a plague from the Lord. Chapter 33, the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, and the, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, and the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So one of the alterations now, this side of the golden calf, is God will no longer, he says, go up with his people. He will not be in their midst. He'll send an angel. He'll keep his word. He'll keep his promises. But he will not go up with and among them because of their sin. And we're dealing now with this problem of how can a holy God dwell with a sinful, stiff-necked people? So then we get the people's repentance. When the people heard this disastrous word, notice the disaster. You're still getting everything God promised. You're getting all the goodies. What you're not getting is God. He will not be with you. You get the land. You get the defeat of your enemies. But Moses describes this as a disastrous word. 
And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. God is holy. And for sinful people, that is the worst possible news. If God is holy and we're sinful and God comes into contact with us, we get consumed. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So the people cry out, they, they mourn, they take off their jewelry, and then Moses goes to meet with the Lord. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the people. He called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went up to the tent, all the people would rise. Each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friends. So here we see that Moses has unfettered, as it would appear, access to God. Now, we're going to learn that's not entirely true in the next chapter. But Moses, singled out from all the people of Israel, meets with the Lord in this tent. The pillar comes down. Moses goes in the tent. God and man meet face to face, in some sense. And Moses would return to the camp. His assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you, in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Now notice that, that subtle shift. It's, it's as though back in verse um, 1, the Lord himself is distancing himself from the sinful people. He describes the people to Moses as your people, whom you brought out of Egypt. And here Moses, as he intercedes for the people, reminds God, no, Lord, they're your people too. You've saved them as well. Consider too, this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses presses further. But Moses wants is God to go with his people. He said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. So Moses pleads with God to relent from this judgment Remember, God said, I'll send you up, and I'll send an angel up with you, but I won't go with you because I'll destroy you. And Moses says, if you won't go with us, just kill us, wipe us out now. And the Lord relents. The Lord says, okay, I will. I will dwell with you. In many respects, the, the rest of the book of Exodus laying out the tabernacle code and the priestly code is, is, is in a sense, the rules that are required if God is going to dwell with his people. Okay, if you want me to dwell with you, then we're going to need washings, and we're going to need all of these um, libations and, and rules for people to draw near to this holy God lest he consume them. So that's Moses' first intercession. You, ne you need to dwell with us. You need to be with us. And that becomes a problem when people are sinful and God is holy. Well, Moses goes on and makes a second intercession. Look at verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. He said, I'll make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, 
and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So whatever it meant in, in 33, when it said the Lord would meet with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friends, we're not to understand it as though Moses is seeing the very face of God. For Moses asked to see God's glory, and the Lord says, I'll show you some of it, I'll tell you my name, but you cannot see my face and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand and I will, until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets. Because remember, Moses came down when the people had worshipped the calf, and he smashed them. He broke all Ten Commandments at the same time. And... That's, that's a joke. Okay. Um, and so now he's going to fashion new commandments, a new copy. Be ready by the morning and come up in the mountain to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flock or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and sin and make us your inheritance. So, to recap, Moses intercedes with God for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. Moses intercedes successfully with God that he would not depart from them, but dwell with them, go up with them. And Moses pleads to see God's glory, and he's told, you cannot see my glory and live. However, I can hide you in the rock, I can proclaim my name, you can see some of the aftertrail of my glory. Okay, now, that's, that's the, the Exodus narrative. Let's turn back to John chapter 1. And let me try to show you why I think that this passage is in view in John's mind. John chapter 1. Verses 14 through 18, specifically. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now John uses a very interesting word here for dwelt, literally tabernacled. It's the same word used back in Exodus 33 of the tent or the tabernacle Moses would meet with God. And in this section of Exodus is the section of the tabernacle code. John uses an unusual word here for Jesus dwelling. Jesus tabernacles with us. So that's the first signpost we get. And we have seen his glory. Moses asked, show me your glory. Jesus tabernacles with us. We've seen his glory. Then we get the contrast between Moses and Jesus. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses. What's Moses doing at Mount Sinai? Receiving the law. But most clearly, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now surely that recalls Moses saying, show me your glory. You can't see my glory and live. So those are just some of the signposts that I think 
bring and evoke Exodus 32, 33, and 34 to John's prologue. And what John, I think, is trying to show us is how the incarnation solves, gives a better, fuller answer, and redeems these issues brought up in Exodus. And I just want to look at it in four points in the time that we have as we look at echoes of Exodus and the incarnation. Number one, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, tabernacled among us. And the import of this statement in John's gospel should not be lost in us. We're so accustomed to this, but it, it should be massive. We've already seen in the opening verses of the prologue that the word was while everything else comes into being. Literally, in the Greek, verse 3, all things that came into being came into being through him. So in contrast to creation, which by its nature becomes, is the word ising, for lack of a better term. He was. He was with God in the beginning. And yet now, in verse 14, the word becomes part of the creation. Jesus does not look human. He does not fill up flesh. He literally becomes flesh. He becomes human. He becomes the God-man, the God who forever in the past was second person of the Trinity, now is part of the creation. He's more than part of the creation, but he's, he's identified with the creation. Just as my body is me, it's not the fullness of me. I am a spirit, flesh being, but my body is me. It's not me and my body. Jeremy Kidder is a spirit and a body. So now Jesus Christ is man and God, and Jesus' body is part of the creation. Jesus has entered into creation. He's become flesh. This was actually the earliest Christological heresy was the Greek, um, the Greek Gnostics struggle with how could God become flesh? They, they didn't deny the deity of Christ. They denied his humanity, his full humanity. And in verse 14, Jesus enters into creation. He takes on flesh. And by virtue of that, he pitches his tent, as it were, with us. He tabernacles with us. And we begin to see how some of the problems brought up in Exodus 32 through 34 get resolved through his incarnation. The word became flesh and tabernacled with us. Remember, Moses pleaded with the Lord to go up in the midst of his people. We don't want the land. We don't want the blessings if we don't have you. Be in our midst. And, and the problem that's raised is how can a holy God dwell in the midst of a stiff-necked, sinful people without destroying them, breaking out against them? And, and in many respects, the entire priestly code and sacrificial system is, is mitigating this problem. And you can only approach so far unless you're clean, and then you can approach a little closer, and, and then these people can approach a little closer, and what you get over and over and over and over is this emphatic understanding that God is holy, and so you don't just sort of waltz in, hey God, what's up? That's one of the... It's one of the negatives of becoming overly familiar with the gospel in Christ is, is nowadays we can become so, hey, God. And, and the Jews of Jesus' day, the Jews of Moses' day understood God is holy. And the real question is how can I, who am sinful, approach a holy God and not be destroyed? And, and Jesus Christ, by virtue of taking on flesh, by coming and identifying with me and my humanity, enables now God to dwell with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In, in Matthew's gospel, we are told, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? What does Emmanuel mean? 
God with us. And so rather now than you and I having to go through all sorts of washings and cleansings and ceremonies and offering sacrifices so that we might approach to the court of the women and children or men, as it were, because of the incarnation, we can approach God. He dwells with us. And we saw in Luke's gospel to be not a sinful woman, fall at his feet and wash his feet with her hair. And that type of approach to God was absolutely unprecedented under the old covenant. His point B, in and through the incarnation, God now dwells at peace with his people. This is, this is good news. This is the good news of the incarnation. In one sense, you could, if you'd keep your thumb here, turn to, turn to Revelation 21. You could almost define all of human history as resolving this problem of how can man dwell with God because at the consummation of human history and the new heavens and the new earth, the same language and, and imagery gets picked back up again. The very problem Moses is addressing, how can this holy God dwell with this sinful people, finds its final solution in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. You get the emphasis here? God is finally, permanently, now and forevermore with his people. That is the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. And all that is made possible because Jesus came to us. He entered into humanity. The old covenant was, how can I approach God? Here God approaches us. Christ did not hold on to his rights, but he humbled himself, took on flesh, and he came into our mode of being. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so this problem Moses is dealing with is solved in the incarnation. Second, we see that we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory glory. Moses is very bold up on that mountain. The people have just sinned a great sin. He has successfully pleaded with God that don't, don't abandon us. Don't send an angel. You yourself go with us. Be in our midst or don't send us at all. And God relents. He says, okay, this very thing I will do. Moses then pleads, show me then your glory. It's as though Moses himself understands that if he's going to lead this people, if he's going to persevere in the ministry God has given him, that He's going to need to see a, a bigger piece, a bigger, a brighter um, snippet of God's glory. And the Lord tells him, you can only see so much. And again, we're back to this problem of the, the finitude of man, the sinfulness of man, and the greatness of God. And so Moses is told his name, the Lord, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And he's able to see some sort of afterglow, but he's told definitively, no, you cannot see my full glory and live. And in that context, evoking this language, when John says, we have seen his glory, I think we're to understand that what before Moses was told no to in the incarnation, the answer is a yes. I mentioned before that it's not for nothing that at the transfiguration, when Jesus goes up on the mount, he's transfigured into light, who is there but Elijah and Moses? In fact, I remember first making that connection, um, Michael Card, a Christian artist, 
um, wrote a song, a little folk song, which is profound lyrics, making this connection. Moses pleaded with the Lord to show him his glory, and as the Father's unique son, Jesus reveals to us the glory of God. Let me just read to you a snippet from Michael Card's lyrics, making this connection, contrasting Moses going up on the mountain and Jesus, hundreds of years later, going up on the mountain. He, Moses, ate the bread of heaven, drank water from the rock, the grumbling children followed like a misbegotten flock. He climbed up on a mountain they couldn't even touch. Who'd ever known that one encounter could have ever meant so much? And up upon that high place, in a cleft of solid stone, his face was set on fire as the God of glory shone. He alone had seen it and had lived to tell the tale, but because they feared the fire, he had to hide behind a veil. Remember Moses, when he came down, they put a veil because it creeps them out. In a face that shone with the radiance of the Father, though it had known and endured dark desert days, the face that shone with the glory of another, so the prophet would discover as the glory was fading away. Now Jesus, he was the bread from heaven. He would be the smitten rock. He had 12 confused disciples. They were his bewildered flock. When he climbed up on the mountain, he took Peter, James, and John. In the face of pending glory, they soon began to yawn. As he prayed while they were sleeping, he was transfigured into light. His face a flash of lightning, his clothes so burning bright. So Moses finally saw the face before he'd hidden from. Then came a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. The face that shone is the glory of the Father. And he had known from the start that it was so. The face that shone had let the light shine out of darkness and were changed into his likeness as we gaze upon the sun. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, no, you can't see my glory. But through the incarnation now, John has so bold as to say, we have beheld his glory. Moses, I mean, we, we sometimes are tempted to think, man, if I got to see what Moses saw, if I could have been up on that mountain, if I could have seen God's glory, what John is saying is those of us who see Jesus Christ in the word, those of us who know Jesus Christ have a greater glory revealed to us, a greater privilege afforded to us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Point one here, Jesus perfectly reveals the Father's glory. See, the solution isn't Moses couldn't see glory A, but Jesus brings glory B, and you can see glory B. No, the point is the very same glory that Moses had to hide from in the cleft of the rock is revealed through Jesus Christ. That's, that's why John says, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. According to Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he goes on further to describe Jesus' glory as typified by or full of grace and truth. Another connection back. Remember when God reveals his name, the Lord, I'll be gracious to him, I'll be gracious. This is the same glory. The same glory that was inaccessible in its fullness at Sinai now is able to be seen in Jesus Christ. G.A. Carson writing on this says this. This pair of expressions recurs again and again in the Old Testament. The two words that John uses, full of grace and truth, are his way of summing up the same idea. The glory revealed to Moses when God passed in front of him and sounded his name. 
displaying that divine goodness characterized by grace and truth is the very same glory John and his friends saw in the Word made flesh. That's the point. That's what John wants us to grasp. And we see glory, and seeing glory becomes a big deal in John's gospel. Turn to John chapter 2. Jesus' first miracle, the wedding at Cana. Look at verse 11, how John sums up the conclusion of Jesus turning the water into wine. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. John's gospel is a gospel about seeing Christ's glory. It's not just that John was alive and saw Jesus' glory. He's telling us the events of Jesus so that we too can see glory. And through the word, we have access to a greater and fuller glory than Moses ever had on that mountain. That is what is so amazing about the incarnation and about Christmas. Jesus perfectly reveals the Father's glory. Jesus' glory is full of grace and truth. And John bore witness to his divinity. Look there in... uh, Verse 15, he adds it in again. John, John the Baptist, or in John's gospel, John the witness, since he keeps on being told he's a witness, is brought in again to testify. And here, look at verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John's understanding of Christ's greatness rests in his pre-existence. Because Jesus existed before, remember John is the older cousin by a few months in regards to human birth. John is, humanly speaking, older than Jesus. But Jesus, being preexistent, predates him and therefore is divine. The point is, this was the one whose glory was back at Sinai. It's the same glory that we now have access to through Jesus Christ. John bore witness to his divinity. Brings us then to the third point. I think probably the crux of John's passage. From his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace. Grace in place of grace. Now, if you have an updated ESV, there's a footnote um, in the text. The text of the ESV reads, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. But then the footnote says, or grace in place of grace. That is absolutely the better reading. Um, The Greek preposition is anti. Things are in opposition or in contrast to each other, like anti-aircraft gun. Um, The notion is not a grace coming in and a grace coming in and a grace coming in like waves of the sea, grace upon grace upon grace. That is not the picture. The picture is a grace in place of a grace, which makes sense of the very next verse, where you get a contrast. For the law was given through Moses. Here's one thing. On the other hand, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what John is saying is profound. From his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace, or a grace replacing a grace. What that means is John is, in some sense, casting the law of Moses as a grace. It's not normally the way we think of the law of Moses, is it? Grace. Paul doesn't speak of it that way. But you can understand how the law is a grace if you think of it this way. Did God have to give anyone a law? No. The law reveals our sinfulness. It reveals the holiness of God. It reveals what he requires. He didn't have to give that. It was a grace that God gave it. And he gave it to Israel. He didn't give it to the Chinese. He he gave it to Moses and the people of Israel at Sinai. That surely is a grace. 
The gift of the law is a gracious thing on God's part, even if what the law unfolds is in itself a hopeless standard to meet of a holy God and a sinful people. So on the one hand, Moses brought the law. And the Jews of John's day prided themselves in the law. And the point is that what Jesus brings is something so much better. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. If there's some grace in the law, understand that what Jesus brings is through and through grace and truth. In fact, Jesus, throughout the rest of John's gospel, again and again and again, will fulfill, replace, bring its fullness of Old Testament pictures, starting not least of which with the vats of ceremonial cleansing water that he turns into wedding wine. Then in chapter 4, he tells the woman, the Samaritan woman, pretty soon there's not going to be a geographic center to the worship of God. Remember she asked this mountain or that mountain, where should we worship? The time is coming and now is here when God seeks those who worship in spirit and in truth. Or telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. The new covenant has come. Jesus brings something greater than the law of Moses. And to really unpack this, we need to go to Hebrews. I'll just read you a few passages. But first, we know from Hebrews and from our study during um, the, the five solas of the Reformation that Jesus mediates a better covenant. Moses comes down from Sinai with a covenant. Jesus brings a better covenant. Listen to Hebrews 7, 5 through 6. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from people. Well, that is the wrong passage. Hold on. That is not the right passage. Hold on. Seven, five, the better covenant. There it is, 722. Okay, there we go. <sighs> this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. In chapter 8, verse 6, which I think is what I was getting at when I wrote 7, we read this. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus mediates, he brings. Moses returned from the mountain with the law covenant. Jesus came in human flesh bringing the new covenant. Purchased by his blood. Remember the words of institution at the Lord's Supper? This cup is the covenant, my blood. Because Jesus offers a better sacrifice. Jesus offers a better sacrifice. And again, we looked at this, so I'll pass briefly, but we looked at this in our series on the Reformation, but Hebrews 9 23 to 26, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. See, Moses just brought a copy of the heavenly thing, the earthly tabernacle, the earthly sacrifices. But Jesus, um, Christ entered 
not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters a holy place year after year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. All that is done through the incarnation. Jesus brings a new covenant. He purchases the new covenant with his death on the cross. He brings the covenant and he is the sacrifice of the covenant. Superior in every way to Moses' covenant and Moses' sacrifices. Jesus has replaced the grace of the law with the grace of the new covenant. From his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace. And finally, he has revealed to us the Father. He has revealed to us the Father. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Literally, the Greek there is exegeted. You you could translate it to translate or expound Again, Moses is told, you cannot see my face and live. We're reminded of Job recognizing his inability to draw near to God. He needs someone to be an advocate who can lay a hand on them both, who can bridge the gap. How can mortality interact with immortality? How can the creature approach the creator? But through the incarnation, because the creator has now become in part creature, because Jesus has taken on flesh, Now, we can see and approach what we could not see and approach before. Moses was not able to see God and live. Yet Jesus perfectly images the Father. Jesus perfectly images the Father. Let me turn to John chapter 5. I want to run a little further with this. How is it that Jesus... Images the Father. Jesus gives us um, some understanding of this in John 5. And it helps us also sort of understand what it means that Jesus is God's Son. That Jesus is God's Son. When we think of sonship, we generally think in our day and age it's genetics and paternity. And you're going on the talk show and they do the test and they reveal, oh, you know, that's true, that's false. Who's, who's really the Father? That's not the Jewish sense of the, of the understanding, nor is it what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is... Sonship is fundamentally a functional sonship. We, we have the expression like father, like son, and, and that is the notion in Jesus' mind um, in the first instance, as will become clear. So if you remember in John 5, Jesus heals the man at the pool who's paralyzed on the Sabbath. And he does it intentionally, picking a fight with the Pharisees. And in verse 16 of chapter 5, this is why the Jews are persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Now understand, Jesus could have answered them the way he does in John 7, which is to say, you guys really sure that healing a guy on the Sabbath is work? You can turn to John 7 and Jesus makes that exact argument. He says, look, the priests circumcise on the eighth day, and if the eighth day is a Sabbath, they do it anyway. You understand that there's, there's room in the law for, for those types of things, and if the priests can circumcise, how much more can I heal a whole man's body. If Jesus had answered that way, there'd have been a good debate. Some people might have, you know, some some tempers might have been raised, but they wouldn't be trying to kill him. Jesus' answer is much more direct here. My dad works on the Sabbath, so I do too. That's Jesus' answer. (laughs) 
They, they, they don't misunderstand it. They get it. He is claiming functional equality with God. If God does it, I do it. If God works on the Sabbath, I work on the Sabbath. The very next verse makes that clear. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his phone father, making himself equal with God. And then what follows in this discourse is Jesus balancing on a knife's edge, trying to make it clear on the one hand, I am equal with God. On the other hand, I am not in competition to him. I'm, there's a completely harmonious relationship between the Father and myself. And so Jesus will emphasize both one truth and then the other. And we see that his sonship is functional. Look, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. So I'm never doing things that are out of line with, out of character with, in opposition to God. That's that one emphasis. There's no daylight between them, as it were. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So here, notice this, how does the Father, according to verse 20, demonstrate his love to the Son? In verse 20, the Father's demonstration of love to the Son is a full and complete self-disclosure and revelation. So, so Jesus says, the Father loves me, and as an act of love, shows me everything he's doing. And to borrow a word picture from um, D.A. Carson, it, it's like thinking of Stradivarius, the violin maker, showing his son the entire family business, how the paints are mixed, how the glue is made, how the wood is chosen and cured. He reveals to the son, who he intends to inherit everything, the family business, everything he does. And so Jesus says, my father loves me and shows me all that he himself is doing. So there's the first piece. And then Jesus insists he only does what he sees the father do. Truly, truly, verse 19, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And here we have the basis for Jesus' ability to image God perfectly. Because what we've got is, here is one who fully and perfectly sees the father in every aspect of everything that he does. And Jesus does that and nothing but that, plus or minus nothing exactly. Which is why in chapter 14 of John's gospel, when Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us, Jesus can respond, how long have I been with you and you still do not know me, Philip? Whomever has seen me has seen the Father. Because Jesus only does those things he sees the Father do. And so Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the revelation. According to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And you can stop and think of all the different ways God spoke to the prophets, through dreams, through a donkey, through a burning bush. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Moses goes up on a mountain, pleads with God, Lord, we need you to dwell with us. I, I, we need you to dwell with us. And I need to see your glory. And John wants us to know that through the incarnation, through the fact that the Son of God has taken on flesh, God now dwells with his people. 
and not in a temple that we have to tremble to approach through washings and sacrifices, but by, by offering himself up, by, the, by destroying the temple of his body and raising it again, we now are at peace with God through faith in his Son. And whereas Moses could only see so much of God's glory, now, in Jesus Christ, we see the glory of God revealed perfectly. Whereas Moses brought the law, which was, in a sense, a grace, Jesus has brought a new covenant and grace and truth par excellence. And Jesus has revealed to us the Father. All of this, John packs into these few verses, showing us the impact, the greatness, the wonder of the incarnation. Now, that's why it's important to fill in these categories, because that's not jumping off the picture when you see the little picture of the baby in the manger, is it? But understand, this child in Mary's arms, this child that we, we cherish at this season, is the eternal word of God. And by virtue of his enfleshment, his taking on a human nature, by him coming to us, we now have peace with God who dwells with us. We now can see God's glory. We now have a new covenant. And we now can see the character and the glory of the Father. All of that through the incarnation. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord God, these truths are too wonderful for us to grasp. They're too high. And yet, Lord, with eyes of faith, we pray that you would help us to see more of this glory. As we know that in seeing your glory, we are transformed from one image of glory to another. Lord God, help us to cherish the Lord Jesus Christ as he is, as you have declared him to be in your word. And this Christmas let us worship you in spirit and in truth. You have come to us. You have done what we could not do. And so we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed. <laughs>